Well, Christmas is coming, as we know. I mean, we're ta- talking about it for New Year's, we're, um, for New Year's, for Christmas Eve. We're, we're doing Advent. I love the Brants up here helping us. Brian's one of our elders. It was awesome just to have part of their family here talking about what it looks like to think about who Jesus is. And, um, and I didn't realize this, but uh, a couple of weeks ago, I, I came into the kitchen and the mail was sitting there and there was a Aldi circular. Do you know what a circular is? Do you remember that phrase? Circular is a advertisement. It's a color advertisement most of the time. And circular is because it was circulated around the community. I can't believe they're actually still using them because we now have this thing called the internet, which works a whole lot better, right? But uh, I was looking at the Aldi circular and, uh, and I didn't know how involved Aldi was with Advent. In fact, you might even call them the Advent headquarters. Here was the, the main feature were the Advent calendars, right? So from Aldi and probably other places too, you can begin your Advent season with uh, 24 premium choices of cheese, right? Every day for the 24 days leading up to Christmas, an, a, a, another form of cheese, American, Swiss, cheddar, Maybe I hope they're a little bit more sophisticated than that, but we are at Aldi, right? So, or the, or the, the skincare 24 day of Christmas where you lubricate and exfoliate your <laughs> epidermis for 24 days. And then, of course, there's the, uh, the beer advent calendar, which in, has its own merits in some ways. You know, a beer a day for 24 days before Christmas. Huh? Not positive that's a great idea, but I'll tell you, you'll be in some form of Christmas spirit at the end, for sure. <laughs> maybe, maybe you shouldn't be there, but that's, you know, that's where we are. Now, here's the thing. And this stuff is, you know, comical in a sense. And, and in another way, it's, it's a little bit sad, isn't it? It's not sad because we're frustrated that people are celebrating Christmas with cheese or or skincare products or even beer. I mean, it, it really isn't sad because of that. Here's what's sad about that, is that those kinds of things and parties and lights and gifts can become the celebration instead of help celebrating the one that we're supposed to be celebrating. Right? And, and let me just say, I, our family, we love gifts. We love giving gifts. We love receiving gifts in back and forth between one another. We love the lights. We love the whole Christmas season. But here's the thing we have to keep in mind and keep in the front of our heads is that, uh, that we can't use those things to replace the gift. All they can do is represent the gift. And if, and if we move the celebration kinds of activity to become the gift, then we've really created a meaningless celebration. I mean, can you imagine? What power is there in celebration without a purpose? What, what, what power do we have if we celebrate like we were just talking about? What, what hope do we give somebody in Kentucky who's just lost their family? member, or their job, or their house, or their livelihood, right? If we don't celebrate someone who is really significant, who really has the power to do something about those situations, if it's not Jesus that we're celebrating at Christmas, then we're really celebrating nothing. 
and bringing nothing to the table in terms of who we are and what we're engaged in in the world that we live. Today, we're, we're going to move into the next covenant. We've been making our way through the Advent season in the covenants of the Old Testament. First, it was the uh, Noahic covenant, and last week it was the Abrahamic covenant, and today it's the Mosaic covenant. If you, like you, Steve, Steve said, if you have your Bibles, turn to Exodus chapter 19. Really, the, the, the covenant called the, the Mosaic covenant is really somewhat of a misnomer, actually, because this covenant is more about a partnership. That's really what a covenant is, a partnership between God and his people, not just with Moses. It's a covenant between God and his people to bring forth the plan of redemption. That's really what the main covenants in the Old Testament are all about. This plan that God had to bring forth reconciliation, to bring forth healing of the world that was broken by sin. Now, Moses is a, man, he's a central figure in this whole thing. He's, he's, he's a complex character who is a foreshadowing of who was to come. In fact, uh, theologians call him a type of Christ. He, he gave pictures of what Jesus would be. It's so interesting. John was sharing a a book that he's reading with me called A Person of Interest, and the author, J. Warner Wallace, writes these words. He says, "I, um, I, I hesitated to look at God in the Old Testament because it seemed so huge and somewhat obscure to read about him in that way. But as I focused on the prophets and leaders that were chronicled on the pages of the Jewish scriptures, I was surprised to discover descriptions of Jesus. Consider, for example, the following list of attributes. As a baby, he escaped the decree of a king and avoided certain death. He lived in Egypt as a child, but later returned to his homeland. He was known by his followers to be both humble and strong. He was tempted while in the wilderness. He miraculously fed thousands of people with bread. He worked a miracle at the sea. He spoke God's word and taught God's law from a mountain. He was a mediator between God and his people. All things that were true about Jesus Christ, but also true about Moses. Moses, born as as an Israelite and then escaped the decree of the king to kill all kids, boys, Israelite boys, under the age of two. He, he was one who fed the nation of Israel. Actually, God did it, but he was the mediator between God and men. He fed them with bread in the wilderness. He's the one who stood before God, before the uh, armies of Egypt, and God used him to part the Red Sea. Amazing stuff. And not just amazing as a deliverer, but amazing that he pointed to someone who would be our ultimate deliverer. Jesus delivered the people of Israel from the Egyptians physically. And he did it for a very specific purpose, so that God could send an ultimate deliverer who would deliver us, not just physically, but spiritually as well, away from sin and back to our God. So, Moses. Here's here's what God says to Moses and what God says to Moses to tell the people. In verse 1, it says, On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness, where Israel encamped before the mountains. 
while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for the, all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Israel came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, and the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. Let me just recap what's happening here. God starts to speak to these people. And, and, and in many ways, what he says is, I want you to remember me. Now, what's weird about that is that if you go back to verse 1, it says that on the third new moon, which means about three months ago. So there were, there were some, there's some, you know, correlation between um, where they were and where they are now. There was, there was some connection, and that time frame was only about three months. It wasn't some long period of time that they would have totally forgotten or, or maybe many of them had died off. No, this was like supposed to be fresh in their minds. But God wanted to remind these people of something about who he was and what he'd done. And, and that's not just so that they, oh, I, we'd already forgotten. It'd been wiped from our memories. It was just to be a, a reminder that God was who he said he was. And here's the reminder. He says, do you remember what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself? You know, there used to be two eagle's nests out on 2661 out by Lake Palestine, somewhere between you know, Big Eddy Road and Lake Placid Drive. I remember if you turned left onto 2661 off Lake Placid, uh, just a few, maybe 100 yards up or maybe longer than that. It's been a long time since I've been out there. There, there used to be a field that was there, and there were these two nests that would sit there. And people would park along 2661, a dangerous road to park on, but they wanted to see a glimpse of one of those eagles taking flight from their nest. Maybe some of you actually saw that happen. Have, have you ever seen an eagle in the wild flying? It is a marvelous, almost miraculous sight. It, it, it's effortless to see those birds move. It, and, they, and they're so fast in the way they move. And as you think about this description of who God was and what he did for the Israelites, that's the picture that I get. An eagle confident in his flight, effortless in his flight, swift in the way it happened, majestic, might we call it awesome. And that's what God was saying about his deliverance of the people of Egypt. Went in, quickly grabbed them, removed them from this oppressor, Egypt, and took them to a place effortlessly away from them. In fact, as he, 
as, as he pulled them out of Egypt. They were willingly giving the Egyptians everything that they owned to the Israelites. They were happy to see him go. And when they finally had a change of heart and began to pursue them with their army, God shut the door on that at the Red Sea. And we're being reminded of who God is and what he's done for the people. And then God says, okay, you remember who I am. Now, therefore, verse 5, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. So here's the thing. You know who I am now and you know who you are. Now, here's my desire for you. You better, you better obey my voice and you better keep my covenant. Now, remember the covenants we were talking about the last few weeks. They, they're, they're what you call a unilateral covenant. In other words, last week when we were talking about Abraham, what God said to Abraham was, I'm making a covenant with you, and no matter what you do, I'm going to follow through on that covenant. It doesn't matter. I'm going, to, I'm going to bring forth a redeemer who's going to bless the world through you. And how you, what you do and how you obey or how you engage has nothing to do with the end product. I'm doing that. If you, and, and then in this particular covenant, it's not about a unilateral covenant. It's a, what they call a bilateral covenant. In other words, both parties have to be involved here. Both parties have to have part of what's happening here. And so what, what God's saying is, here's the thing. I want you to obey my voice and keep my command. I want you to obey my voice and I want you to keep my command. And if you do that, there are going to be certain results that take place. Again, at the end of verse 5, here's what he says. If you obey me and if you keep my covenant, then you're going to be my treasured possession. You're going to be something so valuable to me, more valuable than anything else. Which makes me think about Jesus in Luke 15 talking to the Pharisees about why he allows people who are so desecrated and so vile around him. And he gives three pictures. He says uh, there's a coin and there's there's a son who's lost and there's a sheep who has strayed from the 99. And the the theme of those three stories is that God has great value and will chase down what he has of value until he finds it and brings it home. We're a treasured possession, right? We're a treasured people. And and what God is saying to these people is, I want to treat you like that based on your obedience. And then he says, you shall be, if you're obedient, A kingdom of priests. Now, these guys, they didn't really understand what priests were in the Old Testament yet because that hadn't even been revealed yet. I mean, there were some pictures of priests in the past, and their their thought process for 400 years, they'd been living with the Egyptians who were worshiping false gods, and they had these priests who were calling down false gods to help the physical ailments of the people of Egypt. And that's all they had in terms of what it looked like. They knew in some ways that there was some sort of mediation that was taking place between the priests and God. And what God was telling these people is that if if you would obey me, I'm going to make you a kingdom of priests. Every one of you is going to be a priest. Every one of you is going to be a mediator of God's grace to the lost. Does that sound familiar? That's who we are. We're mediators of God's grace to the lost. We, too, are about freeing captives. In Isaiah 61, 
There's a prophecy about Jesus' coming. And, and then in this prophecy, Isaiah says that there's going to be coming a one who is going to one day come. And he's going to set the captives free. He's going to be this priest that sets captives free. That's who we're going to be. You know, it's probably the most tragic part of this whole tornado incident is, uh, is what's happening in in that candle factory. Maybe you've heard about that. They still don't know how many people, at least as of earlier this morning, they still don't know how many people had died. But one of the stories that's coming out of that uh, event was that, um, that a lady who was rescued out of there, she said that there were a, a group of um, inmates who were on a work release program who were there. And, um, and when the building started to collapse and started to trap people and people were being held captive literally by the rubble, these inmates began to remove the rubble and help free these people. And Vicki was telling me this yesterday, and she said, you know, what's really interesting about that is that it so relates to what God wants us to do. Captives, prisoners, freeing prisoners, who will once again free prisoners, right? Here are these, these people who were incarcerated, who were captives, who were prisoners, who were freeing prisoners from their captivity and letting them go. That's what God says the people of God, his people, are supposed to be about, freeing captives. And God says, if you obey me, you're going to be my priests who mediate between me and the lost, who offer this, this hope of the gospel, this hope of what I'm going to do for the world. And then he says, and, and you'll be a holy nation. You'll be set apart. You'll be distinct. You'll be different than every other nation. And man, when the, when the Israelites heard that, and after seeing what God had said and done back in Israel, or back in Egypt, delivering them as the Israelites, look what they did in verse 8. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we're going to do. We're in. A completely unified response to everything that God was saying. Obey my commands, keep my covenant, and you got all this. And they said, we're in. We're doing it. Have you ever, um, ever kind of like gotten really excited about something? <laughs> and... Uh, and uh, I, I, I envision, I, I, I don't have a YouTube clip in mind, but I envision this happening, and maybe you can find it later for me. But some great football coach at halftime giving this great pep talk and speech and gets the team all fired up to go out to play the second half and somebody forgets to unlock the door to the locker room and everybody slams into the door and falls down. They never get out, right? I think sometimes we get so fired up about stuff, right? And I think the Israelites were so fired up about this, they didn't really understand what they were being called to. You know, they didn't understand exactly what this task was going to be about. Um, Mount Everest is 29,000 feet high. I mean, that's where commercial airlines fly, right? That's pretty high, okay? I literally have zero interest in climbing Mount Everest. Zero. I, I have no interest in that. But some people are absolutely enthralled by it, aren't they? I mean, 
man, it's, for some people, it's just like everything about life could be, if you could get to the, and stand on the top of the world. I mean, I've been to the Empire State Building. That's pretty good, right? That's high enough. But people want to stand on the top of the world. I guess I get that. But before you do that, you better count the cost. You know, that, that process is arduous. I mean, since Edmund Hillary and Tenzing, his Sherpa, climbed it in 1953, only 10,500-ish people have summited. 309 have died trying, okay? Um, it's about a, anywhere between a fifty dollars and $100,000 price tag today. And it's a 60 to 75-day ex- expedition that starts with flying into the most dangerous commercial airport in the world called Lucklau. Lucklau is about almost 10,000 feet in the air. It, it, it has storms and ice and mountains all around it, short runways, just dangerous. And if you finally get to the place where you can land in Lucklau, then you have just a short eight-day walk to base camp. Now, base camp, that sounds like the place where you kind of relax, right? You just, it's this place you hang out. There have got to be recliners there, television sets, all kinds of stuff. Base camp is at 17,000 feet. For those of you who climb 14ers, that ain't nothing, right? I mean, 17,000 feet. That, you're not even getting started at 17. That's the place that you begin at 17,000 feet. And then you sit there for a few weeks just acclimating and actually hiking up and down between Camp 1 and Base Camp. That would be discouraging, huh? Make it all the way Camp 1, you got to come back. Wait a minute, nobody told me about that, right? And then as you're walking up, as you're, as you're walking, let me, let me just say, you're not walking, you're traversing through ice fields, you're, you're being just pummeled by the wind, the, the temperatures are frigid, and there are dead people laying alongside the route. Dead people, I mean, from years ago, who look like exactly the same when they died because they're frozen. And you think to yourself, huh, I mean, are you thinking in your head, this is a good idea when you see dead people right there? No, I don't think that's a great idea. And then the most incredible thing, you get within 300 feet of the top and you discover something. You're actually on South Broadway. There are, (laughs) literally, there are over 200 people in this picture, 300 feet from the top of Mount Everest. I mean, look at that. They're like, they're like the, the, the pathway is about that wide, and they're wearing these packs, and they're completely exhausted, and they can't breathe because it's 29,000 feet. And you think to yourself, did why am I here? (laughs) And the worst part of it is, here is literally the worst part of it. Most people who die on Everest die on the way down. What? (laughs) I'm here. I'm dead. (laughs) It was going to be so great. (laughs) It's not so great. Right? I mean, if if you're going to climb Mount Everest, man, you... You, you better understand the cost. And Israel was just about to find out what their cost was. I mean, they were so pumped up. They were so excited. It's like, it's like they flew into, into Nepal. They got to Lucklau. They saw the mountains, and they just started running, you know, towards, I'm doing this. And then God says, let me just tell you what this means. What does it mean to keep my covenant? What does it mean 
to keep my word. And then he goes on into these. I mean, talk. I'd rather climb Mount Everest. I'd rather climb Mount Everest than have to do what comes next. The Ten Commandments. You've got to keep Ten Commandments. Remember the Ten Commandments? We did them this summer. Actually, the Ten Words to Live By. Everything about who you are and what you're supposed to be in relationship to God. Everything about who God is, about how you treat him, about how you treat people. And man, those are specific commands. And then those specific commands, which are now we kind of call the moral, general moral law of God, they become the foundation for all these like crazy laws, right? For all this stuff you're supposed to do. How you're supposed to wash your hands before you eat. I mean, that's nuts. I'd rather literally walk past dead people at 29,000 feet than try to remember, did I actually wash my hands in the right way? These people were about a daunting task, trying to keep a law that they couldn't keep. Worship laws, Sabbath laws, festival laws, hand-washing laws, laws about slavery, laws about restitution, laws about marriage, laws about social justice, all this stuff, and you had to keep all of them. Wow. Really? And here's what God was saying. If you do this, then you get to be my people. Okay. I can't do that. You can't do that. They couldn't do it. Is this really all there is? Was, was God's redemptive plan to give us all some sort of pep talk of obedience? To draw us into the locker room and say, hey guys, hey girls, we can do this. I know we're down 9,000 to nothing. I know the clock's going to run continuously in the second half. I know we have no possible way of winning, but we can do this. You can do it. Just be more obedient. Man, you know, churches are making their living on that kind of preaching today in some ways. And it's completely heresy. Tim Keller wrote a book called Hidden Christmas. And in, the, and in Hidden Christmas, here, here's what he says. He says that uh, the world says we got enough light in us that can dispel the darkness. That's what he says. He says, that, he says the message of Christmas to the world is that, is that we're good enough. We just have to kind of let the light out. We just got to be a little bit more obedient, and everything will be good. Except if all we needed was a little nudge or a little pep talk, that would be one thing. Then we'd all snap to obedience attention, right? But Keller goes on to say the message of Christmas is not that if we try really hard that we can fix ourselves. It's that, no, we are so bad that we could never fix ourselves. That's why we need Jesus. And let me just say, it would be absolutely tragic if the command stopped just with the do's and the don'ts, right? It would be absolutely tragic if, uh, if, if, the commands that God was talking about in order to get his blessing, to be a part of his kingdom, to be a nation of his, to be one of his treasured possession was if the mark was obeying the do's and the don'ts. Because, see, we all get to this place where none of us do all the do's. And all of us at least do some of the don'ts, right? So all of us are doing the wrong thing and not doing the right thing. And, uh, and God's redemptive plan has to be more than just a pep talk to that. That's why the book of Leviticus 
I know that sounds weird. Jason Cook, uh, one of the guys who preaches regularly here, loves the book of Leviticus. And I, I always tell him, Jason, come on, let's find something a little more exciting. But when you read the book of Leviticus, what's exciting about it is that it's the sacrificial system of God that he put in place so that his people, Israel, would have a way to get to God before God provided the foundational way in Jesus Christ. It's all these sacrificial stuff of bulls and goats and pigeons and the offerings of incense and food up to God as an offering. It's the way that God provided his people in the Old Testament in a stopgap measure, a way to get back into right relationship with God. In Leviticus chapter 23, talking about the Day of Atonement, Here's what God says. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Now on the tenth day of this seventh month is the day of atonement. It shall be for you a time of holy convocation. And you shall afflict yourself and present a food offering to the Lord. Afflict yourself. That means to humble yourself. What God was saying to Moses is that one of the things on the day of atonement that the people of God did was to acknowledge their sin confess their sin, admit that they have no ability to do anything about their sin, and to trust in the provision for their sin, which was this offering. In the Old Testament, the offering was bulls and goats and pigeons. And it had to be done daily for the sins of the people. But the ultimate redeemer and deliverer, Jesus Christ, came and once for all offered this sacrifice where we no longer have to stand at an altar and hack to death animals to pay for our sin. No, Jesus, God incarnate, the one who came at Christmas, provided that for us. So the, the lights and the gifts and the parties, I mean, those things, um, those things aren't bad. They, they, they just have to represent the gift of Jesus, not replace him. The celebration isn't about the way we celebrate. It's about who you celebrate. Jesus Christ, the Redeemer. Let's pray. Lord, we want to come before you today and just say thank you for what you've provided for us and how you've done that in your son Christ. You've reached in to do something we could never do on our, on our own, and uh, we praise you for that. And we thank you for this picture of that. I pray for, for our opportunities to be reminded of your graciousness and your salvation in our life. And Lord, I, I pray for people right now who are still trying to figure out what it looks like to have this kind of relationship with someone. Lord, I, I pray for people who are discovering whether or not or thinking through whether or not to give their heart to you. And if that's some place that you are right now, I, I'd urge you to pray along with me that you're a sinner. We all are. 
and that we need Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection. That our, that your, our sin separates you, us, from God. And that Jesus' death and resurrection is the only way to bridge that gap. And you don't have to earn that. And so if you're in that situation right now, would you just ask Jesus to forgive your sin? And ask him to come into your life. And ask him to begin to transform your life. We praise you, God. Would you move in these people's hearts? Would you help them understand more fully what it means to have a relationship with you? Would you help them reach out to someone here this morning, whether it be a staff person or somebody at the guest information desk, or maybe just somebody they're sitting next to? Lord, I pray that that you would help them know you and understand you. And Lord, I, I pray for us as we celebrate Christmas Eve that it would be about you fully and completely and offering you to the world fully and completely. We praise you, we thank you, we adore you. In Jesus' name.